This is Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks, and welcome to my podcast series, The Voice of Leadership. What if life is going exceptionally well? You have the right reputation, influence, networks, personal brand, and the resultant career success and options that come from proper positioning. In addition, you are adding value to those you want to serve in the marketplace and they love you. Then life throws you a curveball, something unexpected a huge personal and physical challenge. How do you navigate the new waters and continue to be successful? My guest today has lived through that journey. Let me tell you a little bit about Rob Brown. Rob runs the Accounting Influencers Roundtable and hosts the world's only daily FinTech and Accounting podcast. Based in Nottingham, UK, home of Robin Hood, he has interviewed over 1,000 guests, moderated countless panels, and chaired multiple business conferences internationally. Rob wrote the best-selling book, Build Your Reputation, published by Wiley, and his TED Talk, The Personal Brand of You, has been viewed over 300,000 times on YouTube. Rob is also a stroke survivor, a committed Christian, a black belt in kickboxing. He plays chess, loves orange chocolate, and is allergic to grapefruit. (laughs) Rob, welcome to The Voice of Leadership and to Dr. Karen Speaks Leadership. Dr. Karen, what a thrill and what a wonderful introduction. You crafted that so well. I saw my life flashing before my eyes in just a few sentences. It was beautiful. Oh, thank you so much. And your life is quite interesting. So we're definitely going to spend some time unpacking that and getting into it. And even your bio, when we think about the fact that you're allergic to grapefruit and you love this orange chocolate, those are distinctives. And so one of the things I do know about you, Rob, is that you encourage people to think about what makes them different, what makes them distinctive, and to lead with some of that and not just the ordinary kinds of stuff. So <laughs> I'm sure we're going to talk about that. So let me ask you this, Rob, right from the beginning. You have a podcast, Accounting Influencers, and you're speaking to accountants and accounting firms and agencies and so on. So first of all, How is it that you decided to do a daily podcast, many people only doing once a week, maybe twice a week, in your case, daily, and how did you also find a thousand people to interview? And I know it's been more than a thousand at this point, and I'm just guessing something about being daily also is related to this distinctive piece. Hmm. Well, let's dip into that. Accountants as a breed are really interesting. You deal a lot with professional executives, Dr. Karen, and these are technically super smart people, uh, often socially uh, a little bit awkward, um, and selling themselves is not an easy part of their role. They're used to dealing in black and white, and so we could dive into that as a a demographic, if you like. But uh, my story 
quickly is a former high school math teacher. I took a, a qualification in accounting, but I, I didn't get very far in my accounting degree, but I came out of teaching after eight years, a few years in Hong Kong, a few years in the UK, and started a training company for professional people, bankers, accountants, lawyers, architects, surveyors, people like that, that needed help with selling themselves. I was fascinated by why some professionals get chosen and some don't. Some get the job, some don't. Some get hired, some don't. Some get the deal and some don't. And what is it about them? Because on the outside, a lot of bankers are the same. A lot of accountants look the same. So what is it that divides them? Uh, we'll talk about it, I'm sure. But a pivotal point in my life was having a stroke in 2016. And I had to make some very difficult choices there about what my life would look like afterwards. And part of that was simplifying. And what you say no to often defines your brand and what you will say yes to. And I had a good accounting client at that time that was very loyal throughout my recovery. And I decided to go all out for accountants, to go deeper with my expertise rather than a mile wide and an inch deep. I thought I'm going to establish myself with the accounting profession. So I started a weekly podcast back in 2017. That's how you get to a thousand shows when you start to do one a week and you build that up over a few years. But for a year, we've been going daily. And so that just piles up the interviews. And it's a fascinating part of my job because you get used to telling your own story a lot. It's wonderful when I can interview other people and get their stories. And you hear a lot of stories. So that tells you about the thousand interviews and it gives you a flavor of how the podcast started. And yes, a big undertaking is daily and it takes a lot of organizing, but it is doable. And goodness, what a wonderful way to establish your personal brand. Absolutely. It is absolutely wonderful. And thank you for giving us a little bit of the backstory. I remember you saying something about being a math teacher. And I recall hearing from your TED talk that you did that you actually described working with some of the children in the classroom as working in a factory. And I would like to have you unpack that a little bit. What do you mean by that? How was it like working in a factory? And what do children really need today? It's a super question. The problem with education today, in my mind, that is, it's all about results, exams. I entered the teaching profession with very noble ideals, and I wanted to be an educator and a mentor and a shining light for children. And for the best part, I enjoyed my job. But then exam timetables came in and exam league tables. So schools then become measured on how many of their students pass examinations at certain levels. So you end up coaching children to pass tests. And that's the factory element of it. I remember one mathematics lesson, and I'm talking about Pythagoras. Do you remember the right angle triangles and, and Pythagoras and adjacent over hypotenuse and all of that, and the sum of the squares on the two other sides and trigonometry? And I said to the children, if you don't label that side of the triangle hypotenuse, you probably lose a mark because you've got to show you're working. And I thought, what am I doing here? This is an education. This is teaching children to pass tests. So you, it then becomes a conveyor belt of where you can get children to. And one of the sad things is the children that were doing well, they got ignored because we were asked to focus on the children that were on the edge. So with a little bit more attention, they could become one of the children that passed. So that would raise the school standings in the league tables. So you focus on the D students and the E students, and you try and get them up to a C. And that's wrong. So while it's a very noble profession, 
and I enjoyed my time teaching, that was the writing on the wall for me. Absolutely. It sounds to me like you wanted to have a much more transformative impact and the system that you were in wasn't focused on education really or transforming children's lives in a profound way. So that's what I'm hearing. And professionals are like that very much in their job in that they sign up with a great intention, uh, the objective to save the world or make a dent in the universe or really make a difference. And they find themselves in a corporate environment a lot of the time where there are restrictions and constraints and political agendas and various stakeholders. They can't be who they want. They can't do what they want. You talk to people like this all the time, Dr. Karen, and it's frustrating. So you then have to make a lot of tough decisions on what you will tolerate and how much you can change. And we may talk about career capital, which came up a lot in my book, but the degree to which you can control your environment and have a say in your life and have your hands on the steering wheel of your own career is a factor of career capital. So there are things you can change, but when you can't change, you do find yourself in situations where you need to get out. Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting, Rob, because you were going a little bit where I was thinking about too, which is what's the parallel between the factory environment with those children back then and into today's world. However, I'll ask it this way. I know that you do a roundtable for accountants, accountants, influencers. So you have an opportunity to benefit people in that context. So what are you doing there that's maybe the antidote or the opposite of the factory approach? The problem with the factory approach, and we'll all have elements of our job that feel like it's a factory. You show up, you clock in, you do what's necessary. But when you come to Accounting Influencers, our brand, we have the podcast and we serve the accounting profession and the influencer group, we call it the roundtable. So it's called AIR, the Accounting Influencers Roundtable. It comprises of people that sell to and through accountants largely. So they serve the accounting profession. The Accounting Influencers Roundtable helps people get the attention of busy accountants to serve them, sell to themselves, through them to their clients. And also it helps accountants themselves who want more kudos and recognition and voice and credibility to influence their peers who are accountants and fellow. But yes, you we're in a relationship game, aren't we? All business is personal. So you make connections and ultimately we're here to serve. So I found a niche, I found a home in the accounting profession. I'm comfortable with the numbers as a math teacher, but that's really not what it's about. We have a handful of accountants and CPAs in our group, but the rest of the people are not qualified accountants. They sell software to accountants. They do IT and consultancy and coaching and mentoring to accountants to help them. And accountants stand in the gap really in these challenging times to serve the businesses that keep the economy going and accountants are that trusted advisor. So in a way, we feel like we're helping the businesses out there by helping the accountants show up better for them. One of the topics I know, Rob, that you address, it's this whole area of talent and employer brand. Now, as you know, corporate businesses today are facing talent challenges, massive talent challenges, and many are reporting a hard time attracting and retaining the most desirable talent. So what can they do to be more effective at attracting and retaining the best talent? I know that 
you've got some thoughts about this that companies really should think about. Indeed. And let's just set some context to the question, Dr. Karen, with the global uh, the grand resignation, whatever we're calling it, as people are recalibrating their lives and asking themselves what's important in these challenging times and what they're willing to stand for and their principles and their values and everything else. So we come to a fork in the road where people say, what's really important to me? And we know there are labor shortages in many, many sectors in professional life, people going off doing their own things, people taking some time out. So it then gives us a situation whereby to get the work done and for companies to deliver on the promises they make to their customers and clients and to deliver on growth targets and keep the shareholders happy, they need more staff. They need more people. They need a bigger headcount. Where do those people come from? If they're not out there to recruit, there are less people entering the accounting profession now than ever before. People are not signing up to professional degrees as much as they used to. People are questioning the worth of a degree now. Is it worth spending three, four, five years to become qualified to end up with a huge amount of debt when it's not really what I want to do? So we get the situation where there is a war for talent. Now, there's always been a war for the best talent, but a war for any talent at all to just fill the gaps in your organization becomes top of the agenda for many managing partners, many CEOs, many chairs of, of companies So yes, you're right to ask the question, how do we stand out as an employer of choice, which gives us what we now know as employer brand. We have three brands. There is a corporate brand, which is the company's brand. And if you're a Nike or a Coca-Cola and other big names are available, you sink millions into your brand. And so you stand out and people know who you are. So there's that corporate brand could be a professional firm. And then there's the employer brand which is not how you appear to your clients and customers, but how you appear to your existing staff and your potential staff. So that speaks of to what degree are you a good place to work and why? What does life look like for you if I set up shop in your family, if you like, and you become my career home? What is that going to look like for me and what are my prospects? So that's employer brand, and we can dip into that. And, of course, let's add in personal brand which is you. This is what people think of Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks when you're not in the room. And all of those manifestations of your values and character and principles on the inside, your personal brand is how that comes out, the way you dress, the way you walk, the way you talk, the car you drive, your business card, your LinkedIn profile. These are all personal branding things, which leads us ultimately to reputation which is what people think and do and feel and say when they come into contact with you and all your personal branding messages and your writing and your speaking and your podcast. So there's a lot in there. And I don't know if I fully answered your question, but we could certainly dip more into what employers can do to stand out in the marketplace to attract the talent that they want. Well, I'd love it if you would share maybe a couple of strategies, particularly when you think of employer brand, because many people know about corporate brand, you know, about personal brand They may not have thought about employer brand and the relevance of it, not just only for attracting, also for retaining people and also for perhaps getting existing employees to be Advocates, say, you know, yeah, advocates out there for new yeah. people to come in. So you talk a little bit about those factors and maybe share a couple of strategies. 
So we can look in books on leadership on what makes a great place to work. And we might assume that salary and, and packages are right up there, but it's often not the case. Research suggests that they are they are factors that come lower down. So what does become important for somebody to pitch their career with you? And we find that it's culture and it's story. So the backstory, the heritage, where did your company come from? What are you in the market to do? What is your raison d'etre, if you like? What is your vision, your purpose? Because one of the things that makes a strong employer brand is the ability for potential employees to see a story that they can become a part of, to see something bigger than themselves, to see that they're contributing, and they're not just a number. They are making a difference. So when firms, companies, organizations start to tell their story in a better way, and the chief way they do this is through their website, uh, we could add social media to that, but you need a good story, a good backstory, a, a brand and values. People buy into that. And then they want to know about the experience of working with you on a day-to-day -day basis. What does working with you for you look like? So that goes beyond what gets put out there in the public domain. And you mentioned retention. Let's talk about that for a moment. Yes, you attract people in with an employer brand that says, this is a good place for you to land. We will look after you and here's how we will look after you and here's what we will do for you and here's what we expect you to do for us. And, and even here's why it's a little bit different and better than the other choices that you have. And that's the paradox of choice, isn't it? Just going off on a tangent. The paradox of choice says, why should I choose you above and beyond all of my other options, including the option to do nothing. So employers have to convince talent out there that they are worthy of consideration and worthy of being worked for. And in a shortage of labor, the candidates, the talent has the power. So just speaking to retention for a moment, not only does attracting staff become a priority, but keeping that staff, because every person you lose, you've invested, you've trained, you've nurtured, you've mentored, for whatever reason they leave, you've got to replace them if you want to keep your headcount. So I'm always fascinated by what makes people stay. Because every day, people in organizations are being lured and called by headhunters and called by recruiters and saying, hey, I've got a role for you. I've got a job for you. What would it take for you to leave where you are right now? So they're being courted and lured away. So what would make somebody turn down an advance like that? Well, they need to know they're in the right place. And that speaks to retention. And one of the things I do for my clients is help them tell their stories through video interviews. So yes, I can interview their clients and talk about why do you work with that company? Why did you hire them? Why do you pay for them to do the job they do for you? But also your staff. So interviewing your staff and say, Dr. Cam, why have you worked at this place for so long? What do you like about it? Well, Rob, I love the culture. What do you mean you love the culture? Well, it just makes me feel like I'm part of something. Well, what does that look like? So I'm starting to get from you examples of what a culture looks like for you and how it makes you feel. And then I'd ask, well, Dr. Karen, why have you resisted the temptation to go somewhere else? Why have you resisted the temptation not to quiet quit? Why do you feel part of something special? Why do you stick around? What gives your loyalty cachet there? Why do you think that your prospects are best served where you are rather than the grass is always greener on the other side? 
So the company always has a job to do in convincing their staff that they are in the right place, that they're continually feeling loved and nurtured and developed. And staff need to hear stories from their colleagues, particularly in multi-site, multi-offices, multi-geographical locations, hearing stories of their peers that maybe they've not met, but they're in the same organization, working for the same brand, they need to hear stories from them of why it's a great place to work. And here's what I'm doing and here's what excites me. So this idea of telling stories, sharing the good stuff, not keeping it a secret. These are things that develop employer brand and make your people want to stay because they feel it's not just me having a good time. There are lots of other people enjoying this too. You know, those are really important points. And I think, Rob, what I often see is that the company may do a good job with the website and describing their story, describing their history in a way that's compelling. And that's why people come into the door. And then where they fall down the stairs is on the experience part. Somehow or another, the story doesn't line up with how people are treated every day or how they feel. You mentioned words like nurturing. You mentioned words like developing and so on. So talk a little bit about that when you look at it and you say, that looks like a delicious chocolate orange ice cream cone <laughs> and you get there and it's grapefruit. You know? Oh, you're speaking my language, Dr. Karen. I yeah. totally relate to that. It's crazy how I like chocolate orange, but, but I do. You're absolutely right. Does the promise deliver? When you look under the hood, is the juice worth the squeeze? Is the amount of effort you're going to put in worth what comes out of it for you? You're going to give your pound of flesh. You're going to give your experience, your expertise, your gifts, your talents, your qualifications, your skills. You're going to give them to this cause in return for a paycheck and whatever else they throw into that mix. So is the juice worth the squeeze? Because there is a price to pay for being employed. Uh, we're not talking predominantly to an audience here and, and listening to your show of entrepreneurs and people doing their own thing. These are professional executives. They're generally employed. They have people they have to please. They've got to keep showing up and, and adhering to the company policies and procedures. So there is a price to pay for that. And we're always asking ourselves, is the juice worth the squeeze? Am I getting out of this what I'm putting in? That leads to quiet quitting and it leads to people looking elsewhere. So employers have to be really mindful of that. And you talked about the website. Many corporate websites are conflicted in that they're trying to do too many things. As an example, take an accounting firm website. And believe me, 99% of accounting firm websites look exactly the same, the same colors, <laughs> the same messages, the same values, uh, the same promises, the same services and products. So that's a problem in itself. But they're trying to do too many things. They're certainly trying to attract new clients. So they're saying, these are our service lines. This is what we do. This is how we do it. These are our values. This is how we treat our clients. This is how great we are. These are our people. Now, the clients need to see that. I understand if you're moving from one accounting firm to another or switching providers, you need to see some kind of gap or differential to make you move. But accounting firm websites are also trying to attract staff and people. Now, if I'm a young graduate coming into the profession, I don't care about what you do for your clients. I don't care about the services that you offer. I care about your culture. I care about what you do for the community. 
I care about your attitude to diversity and equity and inclusion. I care about your views on environmental and social governance. I care about your place in the world. I care about your backstory. Your clients often don't care about that. They just want a good accountant. So you've got to be telling different things, which confuses Google. You're trying to put different messages out on your website to appeal to different audiences that want different things. So I say to professional firms and executives, if you're going to have to tell different stories, then at least do it in the right way and have specific areas on your site or even have a separate website, one for your outward-facing corporate brand and one for your talent brand, an employer brand website that talks about your culture and talks about what a career path looks like and mentions the vacancies that you've got available and mentions the kind of person that makes a really good fit for your organization and speaks to your attitude to the community and society and talks about your culture of diversity and, and inclusion that your clients don't care about, but your potential staff really, really do. So the website is obviously a key vehicle, but you've got to use it right. And if you don't, it just becomes one big mush one big mess that confuses Google and everyone else. I think this is wonderful advice and counsel to really consider having a platform for both messages to the clients, the prospects, that's one, and then to the talent that may come to the organization. And then, of course, even if they nail the messaging on the talent one on that website, they still have to live it every day in the in the corporation in order for it to be real and in order for people to continue to stay. Because when they get there and they're having that grapefruit ice cream cone, they're not <laughs> going to tolerate that too long before they're ready to leave and find who has the real chocolate orange, so to speak. Yeah. I do think that's still a challenge for many organizations. And may I add an extra dimension here, Dr. Karen, of Ooh. how do you communicate the promise, the employee value proposition, as we call it now, the EVP. And one of the best ways we found to do this is with videos. So if you look at a typical company website, there's an about us page and it says, here are our people. And it may give a bio of each person and it may have a photograph. And this is Dr. Karen and, and I'm making this up, but uh, she's in our tax department and she handles a team of experts in this area. And on the weekend, she likes doing CrossFit and walking her dog. And that's all they put on there about their people. But what if you had videos of those people, say being interviewed by Rob Brown, to say, hey, I'm here with Dr. Karen. She works for this accounting practice. And Karen, you've been here five years now. Tell me how you got started. What attracted you to this firm? Well, Rob, I really like this and this. And why have you stayed for so long? And some of the questions we mentioned earlier. And how does the firm help you with your work-life balance and your mental well-being? And tell me about the culture. So I'm interviewing you. Now, you're a real person. So this is real people telling real stories in the Zoom world, just like we are right now, with the background that's a little bit messy and maybe a dog barking. So we're not talking about slick corporate videos, light camera action, auto cue, because that's a little bit too contrived. We want real people telling real stories kind of on the fly, but it's genuine and it's authentic. So people then, once they see those videos on your website, say, okay, that person's like me, or I can really relate to that story. Or I feel like I've got a home here because these people are real. 
and it's authentic. Now that really sells. And if firms did that a lot more, and the same with the clients. Here's an interview with our, some of our clients talking about why they chose us, why they hired us, why we were a little bit different, why they jumped from their old accounting practice to come over to us as their advisors. When you start to tell stories like that, not just with text and black and white and the odd photograph, but video, I mean, don't we know that the, the second most popular search engine in the world is YouTube? The first is Google. And my daughters recently taught me that YouTube is a verb because I asked them something and they said to me, well, dad, have you YouTubed that? Well, there we go. Video is the way we find out how to do stuff and what really works. So that's the importance of video in storytelling and building a brand, Dr. Kara. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Rob, for saying that. So one of the things that I know that you also say is that tough times are really an opportunity for businesses. And yet we know that when tough times come, and businesses are saying, these are some tough times we're facing right now. And yet during those tough times, what I've observed is often businesses go into fear and they start to shrink back. So what advice and counsel do you have for how they can actually take advantage of tough times rather than to cower in fear and shrink back? It's a wonderful point and a great question. There's a term called VUCA. Maybe you've come across yeah. it. You can Google VUCA. Uh, for your listeners, let's just say it right now. Volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. Now, the pandemic has 10x'd that. We had VUCA before, but things are so much more complex and uncertain now. What was best practice two years ago isn't anymore. The idea of making two, three, five-year plans is a nonsense now because it's very difficult to predict where we will be in 90 days. So you're right to talk about challenging times. So in challenging times, people recalibrate a lot of things. We talked about recalibrating careers and directions, but we also recalibrate our supply chain. Uh, who we're working with, who we're working for, who we go to for certain things, where we buy things from, who are serving us in the best way. All of those stakeholders get recalibrated. Once you're in that position, there is a lot of movement, a lot of uh, moving around and switching from provider and advisor to another one because we're looking for deals. Times are tough. Times are challenging. And two areas of opportunity arise for almost all organizations. And these are where your competitors fall down. One is in expertise and the other is proactivity. So let's take accounting, which is a world I know well. As the economic climate changes and as VUCA kicks in, businesses are looking for solid expertise from their professional advisors. Could be bankers, accountants, lawyers, financial planners, wealth managers. They look for clarity and strong advice in the adverse circumstances they find themselves in. And many professional advisors have found that they're ill-equipped to deal with the new world. There's so much going on, they can't stay current, more complex tax situations, more complex government loans and grants and everything else. And many accountants have not stepped up to that level of expertise or can't deal with clients that are demanding more complex services. So that's where a lot of people switch and you have a lot of opportunities to serve clients that need a higher level of expertise if you can provide it. So that's one. And equally, there is a switch the other way. Some clients want 
their accountant to be more simple, more straightforward, and less complex as they have simplified their own business and cut down service lines and cut down. We're not working in that many countries now. We're not going across that diverse range of products and services. So we need a more simple accountant. So expertise provides an opportunity for new business and what we call switch business, but also proactivity. This is where a lot of people have become disillusioned with the companies that they pay to do certain things. Now, how many messages did we see during COVID, Dr. Karen, of we're here for you? We help our clients. We're here in the tough times. We're here in the challenges. But when you call them, nobody answers the phone. <laughs> it takes them days to come back to you. Or saying we're here for you, but all they put out on their social media channels is government updates and check this link. But they're not really helping you. They're not being proactive. They're not picking up the phone and saying, hey, Dr. Karen, how are you doing? What's going on with you? How are you coping with the pandemic? How are you doing personally? How are you doing with your business? So that level of proactivity is really, really important in staying close to your clients and your customers. I understand that during the pandemic, and even now, a lot of businesses are still just trying to keep the lights on. A lot of organizations are just hunkering down and saying, let's just keep our staff. We've had to pivot to remote and hybrid working. Let's just do what we can. But in the midst of that, they forget the customers and clients and they're not reaching out as much and they're not being as proactive. So a lot of clients and customers are feeling less loved, less cared for. They're getting less of a client experience. We hear a lot about CX, client experience. So there are opportunities because some people are falling short. Some firms, practices, companies are falling short in the way they serve the people that should matter and neglecting that duty of care. So who steps into the vacuum? Companies, providers that can do that, that are being proactive. And more importantly, going back to our original point, they have the stories to tell it. As Muhammad Ali once said, the famous boxer, it ain't bragging if you've done it. <laughs> and if you can prove to people out there that you are proactive and you do have the expertise and you are a great place, a great hire, then you will get the work. You know, I love the fact that you mentioned something that's actually easy to do. It doesn't take a lot of expertise to pick up the phone and <laughs> call someone and ask how they're doing or how they're making it through the tough times or whatever, and yet people don't do it. That's low-hanging fruit right there that anyone could do. And in addition, you're also talking about staying current yourself really being what I call a continuous learner, being agile to figure out where the client most needs you, whether it's to understand more complexity or to understand more simplicity. So it's really being attuned, attuned to people, attuned to the environment and responding in kind. So I really, you know, thank you for mentioning those variables for responding in tough times in a way that increases success for both the clients and also the provider when you really think about it. So let's change gears a little bit, Rob, because when we talk about tough times, I know part of your story is that you went through some personal tough times yourself. Your book was coming out, I think, in 2016. And that was, I don't know whether it was before or after, but somewhere in that same time frame, you had a stroke and you're relatively young. So Tell us what happened to you. How did this happen? What's been the impact? Mm. Well, a little bit of context. Yes, I was a high school math teacher, but I also, my degree was in physical education as well. So it was a dual degree. 
And here in the UK, at least, when you take a phys ed degree to be a PE teacher, you take a second subject. So you're not teaching hockey or soccer on the cold playing fields of England in your 50s. And I actually fell into the maths quite quickly in my career, but I've always been sporty and I've never drank. So I'm teetotal. I don't drink alcohol. My father was a drinker, so that just pushed me the other way from drink. I've never drank. I've never smoked. I've never done drugs. So I've always stayed pretty healthy and uh, took a black belt in kickboxing towards the end of my 40s and was in really good shape. You would look at me and think, he's doing okay. But started to get a series of headaches and migraines. And I'd had them throughout my life, maybe once or twice a year. But in one period in 2016, in Easter, I had 23 migraines in 30 days. And these were laying down on the floor, holding your head migraines. So we knew something was wrong and we went for some tests, but it didn't show up anything. What actually was happening was I was having mini bleeds in my brain. So really quickly, without getting too medical, the arteries and capillaries on the outside of your brain, an artery had shunted into a vein and it created a connection or a communication. So it was pumping high pressure blood from an artery into a low pressure vein. And these migraines were mini bleeds, little leakages of blood. Now, I continued for a few months and tried everything. We thought it was diet. We thought it was stress. We thought it was, we tried everything. We went off screens and did the whole lot. But in the end, I was actually on holiday and with my wife and saying, let's just get away. And I went for a swim one morning and I came back and said, look, I don't feel well. And these migraines were making me vomit and they were bad. So I didn't know it back then, but I'd had a massive hemorrhage. So all of a sudden, these capillaries had just burst and it was bleeding into my brain. So we managed to get me back on the plane back to the UK, but it was paramedics and oxygen on the plane. And they got me into hospital. They put dye into me and they knew in my brain that I'd had a big bleed. So that was the stroke. Any blockage or, or hemorrhage in the brain is a stroke. Now, to come out of that is such a blessing and I'm sure we'll come on to faith. But if I'd have said to you, Dr. Karen, you're going to have a stroke, and the only downside is you'll never drive again. You take that. And as I stand here right now in front of you, that is the only downside is I've lost some vision. So where I had the bleed in this part of my brain, it damaged some receptor cells. So my eyes are fine. My eyes see everything, but my brain doesn't transmit all of those receptors back into creating it into an image. So I'm not allowed to drive, and I actually have epilepsy as well. So I take medication for that. Some people come out of strokes, they can't walk properly, they can't talk properly. And I'm very, very blessed and thankful that I'm still able to do a lot of what I can do. And driving becomes a minor inconvenience. There are ways around that. So that's the stroke story. It wasn't planned. God promises tomorrow to nobody. That Don't they say that when man makes plans, God laughs? So very, very grateful. But nobody can say that what's coming up. And Things like cancer and strokes and heart attacks and, and dementia, you can mitigate some of it by living clean, but nobody knows what's coming up. And, and things like cancer and strokes are often no discriminator of people, gender, race, anything else. So I came out of the other side, but yes, I had to make a lot of tough choices. You know, what I love about your story too, and what you said is that even with losses, you're thankful for what remains, 
and for what you can do. And that gratefulness and that thankfulness is really a part to me of successful living. And as you also said, you know, God doesn't promise us, you know, the next day at all. Yet he does promise to be with us, to never leave us, never to forsake us, no matter what we go through. Even if we go through the valley of the shadow of death, he is there. And so talk about that part a little bit, because I know you're a man of faith and your faith certainly had to come into play with how you navigated these tough waters. Yes. And I love talking about this. I don't know how I'd have done it without faith. When I was rolling on the ground with my migraines, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10 came into my head and I kept repeating it to myself. And do you remember the story of Paul had some kind of ailment, the Apostle Paul, and some experts think it was with his eyes. Now, he asked God three times to take it away from him. And the verse I'm referring to is, and God said to me, no, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul says, therefore, I will delight all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why I delight in weaknesses, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Yes. So in my dark times and even during the convalescence and going through the operation and and the recovery, it was bleak. And I had to lean into God by admitting that I couldn't do this in my own strength and I didn't know what the outcome would be, but God was with me. And Romans 8, 28, we know in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. So I knew God had a plan in bringing me through it. I didn't know what it was. And it was, I was praying for my wife too, and my children, my girls were young at that point and they were saying, is daddy going to die? So I joked with them and said, uh, no, because my death certificate has an expiration date and they they believe me it's obviously it's not true (laughs) they said oh that's great then i said i live till i'm 100 that's all sorted one thing that is true though rob about what you're saying is that all the days ordained for us were written in god's book before any of them came to be so that when you think about psalm 139 if it wasn't your time to go no matter what you were going through you weren't going to die you know Indeed, uh, we're all in that book, aren't we? So, yeah, you're absolutely right. But going back to any brush with mortality, any tragedy, it can happen to any of us. Accidents, injuries, tragedies out of the blue to us or people that we care about. Nobody's immune from that. The Bible says, doesn't it, uh, when you have trials, not if you have trials, but when you have trials. So we're going to get hit by something. And I don't know how people do it without faith, because knowing that the good Lord is there holding me in the palm of his hand, wanting the very best for me, guiding me through tough times and and the people around me as well, trying to make sense of it while I'm in the eye of the storm, just trying to get through it and recover. Uh, Faith becomes something that's indispensable. You know, and I understand that you haven't always been a person of faith, that somehow being at a Billy Graham crusade in North Carolina of all places when you were about 30 was the beginning. So talk about that, because when I think of it and you say how important faith was, God, of course, knew that you would face this time that was going to happen in 2016. And so he's preparing you for it, even by calling you to him 
through this Billy Graham crusade. So tell us about that story. Well, that's my testimony, ultimately, Dr. Karen, in that I was brought up a Catholic uh, in Catholic schools. Priests ran my senior school and I was actually head boy, which is a, a position of prestige in my high school. The Catholic religion actually did a lot to turn me off God. I didn't feel it was real. There was a lot of man-made stuff in the churches and the the liturgy and the recitals and the prayers and everything. So I went out and lived my life, left school, turned my back on God, never truly believed, I don't think. But when I got to North Carolina at the age of 30-ish, I found myself in a place where I you know how some people come to God, Dr. Karen, because they run, run out of ideas, they run out of options, they're at rock bottom. Well, I was the opposite. I had too many choices. I just left Hong Kong and uh, I've got a teaching qualification, but I tried lots of jobs. And I'm asking myself, well, where am I supposed to be? What country? What hemisphere? Who am I supposed to be with? What girl? What job am I supposed to be doing? Am I meant to be teaching or doing this or doing that? And I had so many options. And I felt like I was at, in the UK, we call them roundabouts, where you come to that island in the middle of the road, and there's five different roads that go off. And I, I couldn't figure out which road to go down, because I felt if I go down that one, I now can't go down that one on the other side of the island. So what do you do? And bombarded by these choices and overwhelmed by the pressure of getting it right, I started to pray to some God that I didn't know, but I was praying, God, if you're out there, you're the one person that knows exactly what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. And you know that Charlotte, North Carolina is Billy Graham's hometown. I was living with a friend there that I met in Hong Kong, and he was a Christian, a lovely guy called Eric. And uh, he got me interested in the faith. And I went along to, I mean, a Billy Crusade, Billy Graham Crusade, he's passed on now, bless him. But you can imagine this is filling a stadium with 80,000 people. There were 8,000 in the choir. And he doesn't hold back when he preaches. He's a, he was a man of God. So I thought there's something in this. I'm going to take the altar call and I'm going to go forward and I'm going to pray a prayer. So and when I got talked through that prayer of salvation, I was asked, no, I asked them, I said, why should I believe in God? They said, well, you get eternal life. And I said, I'm not interested in eternal life. I want some answers right now. I don't care what happens down the road. I need some solutions right now. So we prayed the prayer and I dedicated my life to God. And But like many people, I wanted, I said to them, if, if God can just show me that he's real, show me a miracle, show me a flash of light, then I'll believe. And they said, look, that doesn't happen to most people. For most of us, it's a blind step of faith. You have to show God that you're taking a step to him and then he'll show himself to you and not before. Mm -hmm. So I prayed that prayer of faith and say, okay, God, I'm in. I'll put you as Lord of my life and I'll pledge what I'm doing to you. Please give me some answers. I don't know what this means for me, but I'm all in. And you know what, Dr. Karen, after that, God started to show himself everywhere. Unbelievable. And, and yet it is very believable. <laughs> well, you're a woman of faith. You know that, that yeah. God does things like that. He turns lives around. Absolutely. And I also know that we're seeking for one thing sometimes, and God has multiple gifts on the plate, on the table for us beyond what we could ever ask, think, or imagine. And Indeed. so you're thinking about the direction for the present. He's saying, yeah, I'm going to give you that. 
you need this eternal life, whether you know it or not, you're going to get that too. And there's some other things, you know, that I will provide for you. And so it's such a journey, you know, every day to see the abundance and the love of God, you know, in our lives in that way. Well, I don't know how your Hebrew is, but I know one word in Hebrew and it's tove. Have you come across this word? It literally means the goodness of God. No, I don't think I know that word. And it's a very rich word. It appears quite a lot in the Bible, particularly the Old Testament. And tove, the goodness of God, speaks to the richness of his grace and and the abundance of his gifts and the faithfulness of his putting up with the disobedience and the fragility and the sin of man. This is the goodness of God. I think it's T-O-V-E. And the, the Jews will and the Hebrews will, will give you it better. But that's worth Googling that word. It's such a rich word. I love words like that. It, they really are quite meaningful. And this year, the verse for my life is really about Jesus Christ talking about how he's come that we might have life and more abundantly. And I think about that in all aspects of, you know, what God is doing, even in this season that may seem like a shrinking in the world, God is still abundant. And so when I look out and I see the mountains right outside of my window here, Pikes Peak, 14,000 feet, I can see the mountains, see the sunset, see the sunrises. I can see God's abundance and beauty and, and goodness and all of that. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's something that's around us all the time. We just have to have the eyes to see it. I love that. And John 10.10 10 is such a great verse that you're uh, yes. pertaining to that. I keep a little journal, not so much a journal like a diary, Dr. Karen, but it's a list of blessings. So I do it month by month, and I just write down things in there that I know I would forget. In one of the Psalms, it says, uh, I am the Lord, your God. Uh, remember not all my benefits. And God constantly exhorted the Israelites to keep telling stories about him and remembering the great things he'd done, how I brought you through the Red Sea and delivered you from the Egyptians and all of it. So we forget the great things that God does. We forget a great sunrise or how amazing the moon was or how he delivered you from something or how he great gave you a great meeting with a, a client or a customer or a promotion or, or little things like that, how you went for a great walk or had a wonderful conversation. So I write these down in this little book of victories and celebrations and in there goes answers to prayer and things that I'm really thankful for. And looking back on that, things that I would forget, it just helps me to almost make an altar to God and put a stone up there and say, I remember that now. I see it written down. I remember how good I felt when God blessed me there. Yes, these stones of remembrance, they're quite important. Indeed. Absolutely, absolutely important. So, Rob, what is next for you? What's next on the horizon? What's important for you at this stage of your life? Well, who can predict who dares make plans and goals? Well, we dare, we're humans, and God actually wants us to make plans and he'll direct our steps. So I totally get that. My wife and I are empty nesters, Dr. Karen. So in August, we have two daughters. Uh, one just turned 20 and she got married. So I did the father of the bride. The other one is 18 and she came out from Nottingham here in the UK to study in North Carolina. She's at ECU. East Carolina University. So we settled her in in August. And in the space of 21 days, we went from two daughters to none. So the next phase of our life in our mid-50s is 
the transition and the different cadence of life and God leading us into what he's got for us next and us being open-minded to that. We've recently changed churches from a big one that was very, dare I say, entertainment heavy, drawing the crowds in, let's put on a big production and life coachy type sermons to a church now where it's a home church, it's a house church, and a bit like first century churches. And it's just very big on doing communion every time, singing a couple of songs, getting back to the word of God, where we all open our Bibles and we all read a little bit of the, the scripture for that day. And there's only eight people in it. It's rural, if you like, it's ethnic, it's, it's back to basics. And hearing God through that, rather than the, the lights and the camera and the noise and the entertainment and the big glossy worship, it is getting get, get into the heart of God and the heart of worship. So that's where we're at in our lives, listening, uh, being obedient, looking for God to show us some next steps and, and where the meaning comes from and what he wants us to do. So a little bit of an open book, a little bit scary. Uh, I, I don't mind saying that, sharing that with you. Uh, a lot of the unknown and uncertainty, our daughters are still around in our lives, obviously, but there are challenges coming up and we get to that point where the, we're the pivot generation. Have you heard that phrase? Not the pivot generation. So when you no. get to 40s and 50s, you're in the middle of the wheel, if you like, the hub of the wheel, you're the pivot because you have probably elderly parents mm -hmm. that you're caring for and looking after, so you've got to look out for them. You're probably at the height of your earning power in your job, so there's a lot of pressure at work for professional executives and your kind of audience that a lot is expected of them at work to nurture the young ones, to run a team, to set example, to be a, a leader of substance and to fulfill those work promises. Then you've got children or teenagers. So you're going through that. You're starting to develop fragility of, with your own health problems. And you are the pivot. You are right in the middle of everything because if you go down, there's a lot crashes down around you. Yeah. You're so, between a whole bunch of different yeah. groups, different generations. You're holding a lot of things together. Yeah. So one of the things I like about what you're saying about going forward is at this season where you're in that hub and you're that link, if you will, it's time to get even more personal, more intimate with God. Just that downsizing to the eight person church, you know, from the mega church, if you will, is increasing intimacy is what yes. I'm saying in, in that sense. So in the time we have left, tell us, Rob, a little bit about your book and who it's for and how people will benefit from reading it. I'm happy to talk about my book. I do have a caveat in here that I can be very honest with you in, in that this book, Build Your Reputation, I'm holding it up on the video now, is available on Amazon. It was with Wiley. It was just completed before I had my stroke. And part of the promise in the book is a series of manifestos or reports yes, of aspects of the that. book that I would put in a repository that people could get online and it was never finished. So I feel bad about that because I gave the publishers the manuscript. I then had six months to write all the manifestos, and that was when the migraine started. I'm happy to talk about the book, and it is a playbook, a career book of uh, how professional executives can build career capital and get the career of their choice where they have the autonomy and freedom and flexibility to define their working conditions and who they work with and what they work on. And career capital gives you that. But if people do buy the book, and, and that's fine, 
then the manifestos will not be there. And I've had to apologize to a number of people to say, look, uh, for whatever reasons, these are not here, but please just enjoy the book for what it is. So um, that's yeah. full disclosure. Absolutely. You know, the book still will help them to craft out the career that they're truly in charge of and yes. crafting to be the way they want it to be at this season in their lives. So it'll have value in that way. And thanks for mentioning about the manifestos because I was aware of them. I didn't know that they did not exist. So that's a great <laughs> thing to be aware of as well. So how can people reach you, Rob? Somebody might want to reach you after hearing you speak sure. today. And let me just add about the book. This is for professional executives. It's not for entrepreneurs because if you're employed by somebody, you can't just put up a website or put anything you like on your business card or put anything you like on social media or have your profiles out there with impunity. You've got to toe the line. You've got to conform. You've got to fit in. So there are different ways where you have to get your ideas listened to and build that authority and credibility within an organization and a sector. And that's who this book is aimed at. My social presence, digital presence is mostly on LinkedIn. So if people search for Rob Brown on LinkedIn, that is a really simple way to reach out and start a conversation with me. We can't be everywhere, although some social media gurus would say you've got to be on every platform at every minute of the day. But people like you and I, well, maybe not me, but you're a celebrity, Dr. Karen, I get that. But even we can't be everywhere. So LinkedIn is the best place to reach out and start a conversation with me. Thank you. We'll put that in the show notes. And I'm going to call you the celebrity in this conversation, <laughs> interviewing a thousand guests. Yes, Rob Brown, the celebrity. <laughs> so, so great. People can reach you through LinkedIn. That's wonderful. You've given a lot of words of wisdom so far, Rob. So what additional words of wisdom do you want to leave for my audience of corporate executives? A couple of things sprung to mind, Dr. Karen, for that. The first is a, an anecdote I first heard from the comedian Steve Martin, mm. based out in California, and he went to do a little seminar for some up-and-coming comedians, and they asked him the question, how do you become a great comedian? And they were expecting answers like, get a really good agent and get material and all this stuff. But he said this phrase, be so good that they can't ignore you. Be so good that they can't ignore you. So it speaks to your point earlier that if people want to be a success, whatever that looks like for them, and for me, success is the career that you want on your terms, the job you want on your terms, that's success. To do that, you've got to be so good that they can't ignore you. So that means investing in yourself, investing in your professional development, taking responsibility for upgrading your skills, knowing that what worked yesterday wouldn't necessarily work today. Quoting Harvey Mackay, who wrote Swing with the Sharks, dig your well before you're thirsty. So develop your network before you need it. Develop your skills in advance. Keep working on yourself. Keep listening to shows like yours to stay informed and stay current and stay relevant. That is the first thing that I would say. The second thing I would say is start to tell more stories. So instead of when people ask you how you're doing and you say fine or not too bad or a very British answer is mustn't grumble, uh, give an answer that tells a story. Oh, and Dave Ramsey actually has a great answer to this one. Do you know Dave Ramsey? Yes, I do. When people come on his radio show and say, uh, I'm good, Dave, how are you doing? He says, I'm more blessed than I deserve, which is a wonderful answer. But tell more stories. So say to people, yeah, I'm doing great. Thank you. I'm working on this right now. Or I just had this wonderful day where this happened, or I'm really looking forward to this. But tell a story and make your world and your life come to life. And if we tell more stories, 
it, it does make us more interesting and more engaging, but also makes us more credible and more authoritative because we're being authentic, we're keeping it real, we're bringing people a little bit into our lives, we're being a bit more vulnerable, and, and people can relate to us a lot more. So don't just say that you're okay. Tell people why you're okay or what you're thankful for or why you're more blessed than you deserve. So keep up on your game and being so good they can't ignore you and keep on telling stories so that people know that you lead a rich life and you're really grateful and thankful for what you've got going on. Wonderful, wonderful counsel. I absolutely love it. So this is great. We can become much more multidimensional to those we talk to when we share the dimensions of who we are and we become real in a 3D kind of a way. That's beautifully put. And, and one of your qualities is you don't waste words. When you summarize things and you, you're very judicious about the words that you say, but nothing's wasted with you. So every word counts and you have a wonderful communication gift about you, which, which makes me realize why you're so popular and why you're so good at what you do. So keep honing that gift and don't take it for granted because have a, after a thousand interviews, the amount of people that say, you know, and kind of, and sort of, and um, and I mean, and all these filler words, you're very eloquent with the way you communicate. And it's a joy. Bless you, Rob. Thank you so much for the gift of the comment that you just shared. And thank you for being here with me today. I have loved hearing more about you and, and just sharing this space together with you. It's been a pleasure. And having interviewed so many people, it's nice occasionally just to tell my story. So I really appreciate the platform and the very thoughtful questions. You are so welcome. So thanks to everyone who's listening as well. And I'd like to close our time out today with a biblical reference that comes from 1 Corinthians and the 12th chapter. These are different verses, Rob, than what you were talking about, but it's talking about the body of Christ being many members. And starting with verse 20, it says, but now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. And I want everyone to think about this. No matter what your talents and gifts are, no matter what issues you've faced in your life, even limitations. You have value to God. You have value on this earth for the purpose that he's placed you here for. And you make up an important part of his body and the body cannot function the same 
without you. So take that away and remember, you matter, you make a difference, and God loves you. You've been listening to The Voice of Leadership with me, Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks. And I want to give a special thanks to jazz saxophonist Ron McMillan for granting us permission to use his gifted music on our show. Thanks for listening. And remember to go to my website, transleadership.com, for more strategies, insights, and leadership resources.